E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoyed today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Anastasia Pernton, and I'm the Associate Director of the Partnership for Public Education. I'll be the host for today's episode of the E4E podcast, which was produced by Sarah Daniels, a graduate student in the Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. On this episode of the E4E podcast, we are joined by Dr. Allison Carpin and Dr. Valerie Earnshaw. Dr. Allison Carpin is the co-director of CRESP, the Center for Research in Education and Social Policy, and a professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Sciences at the University of Delaware. Her work spans from program evaluation methods, topics related to hunger, obesity, school food, supermarket access, food insecurity, and healthy corner stores, to strategies to develop and maintain farmers markets in low-income areas. Dr. Valerie Earnshaw is an associate professor at the University of Delaware. Her work focuses on addressing associations between stigma and health inequities across the lifespan, particularly how stigma undermines health outcomes and what moderates these relationships in protective ways. Today, Allison and Valerie will be discussing their research on the role of stigma in food inequalities, as well as policy, practice, and research implications of that relationship. Well, thank you so much for being here. We're really happy to have you on our episode today. Thanks so much for having us. So my first question for you both is, people use the term stigma a lot, but how is the term stigma used in research? I think this is a great question, so thanks so much for asking. So stigma is a social process, at least defined by theorists and researchers, which really means it's sort of a sociological construct. And so essentially it happens when people are labeled as different in some sort of way. It starts with labeling and then stereotypes are attached to those labels. And then people with those labels are seen as other or less than in part because of those stereotypes. And then they're treated as worse than or they're treated with discrimination. So when you have all of these things coming together, this sort of labeling, stereotyping, being seen as different and discrimination all happening within some sort of power context, that is when stigma is occurring. And I think when we were thinking about stigma in the context of food, we were thinking about a few different types of stigma. So we were thinking about poverty as one form of stigma that was really important. We were thinking about race, weight status, nationality, gender, and a few others. Allison, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think, too, we usually think a lot about people who are trying to use benefit programs, which might include adults and children. So how does stigma manifest at both a structural and individual level then? As researchers, we're often focused on what we call these stigma manifestations. So these are ways that this social process is sort of represented or embodied within our structures and among individuals. So sometimes I say that these are the things that are actually observable, they're measurable, they're intervenable. I think Allison sometimes says stigma is sort of an abstract social process. She said this is like what we can see with our own eyes. 
so within our, or at the structural level, stigma is often manifested as policies, as social norms. At the individual level, sometimes we differentiate between perceivers and targets. So perceivers are people who aren't necessarily living with the stigmatized characteristic themselves. So this might be general community members or policymakers. It could be store owners. I'm sure Allison can have some other great examples, but this group of people, they might experience prejudice, which are negative feelings, stereotypes, which are group-based beliefs that are often applied to individual people, discrimination, which is how people act. It's poor or mistreatment of others. And they may also just sort of perceive stigma in their environments. They just may sort of be aware that something is stigmatized. And then we also think about targets. So these are the people who may be experiencing stigma themselves. So these may be people who are experiencing poverty, racial and ethnic minorities, and others. They may experience internalized stigma, which is sort of buying into these stereotypes and prejudice and maybe applying them to the self. They may anticipate stigma by worrying that they're going to be treated negatively because of their stigmatized status. They may also experience it from other people. So they may experience discrimination from others. Like our perceivers, they may, again, just sort of be aware that it's in their environment. And then we also talked a bit about in our paper, this idea of stereotype threat. So this is the idea of targets may be worried that they could confirm a stereotype about their group. And then this can lead to them being distracted or have their cognitive resources depleted, and that can end up with them actually confirming the stereotype. So this has been really well studied within the context of test taking, with some groups being stereotyped as doing less well on tests than than other groups. But there's been some recent research bringing that into food and eating. So higher weight individuals, when they're exposed to some stereotypes about eating behaviors, they end up in experimental studies eating more calorie-dense foods. Some of the research that we've seen around stereotype threats. So that was one in particular that we thought a lot about in writing this paper. So I'm interested, how is stigma then related to food inequality? This is a really important question. It's really at the heart of why stigma kind of matters in the food and food policy space. And I think the first answer is that we know that it contributes to the gaps, but we're not exactly sure why yet. So a lot of the terms and research that Valerie drew upon in her definition of sort of the overall structure of stigma is really based in research that came from other sectors. So research on HIV or opioid use disorder has been around longer in terms of understanding stigma and how it plays out than it has in the food space. So my first answer is that we know it's related, but we're not exactly sure how. And I think one reason why this paper is important is because it starts to give people ideas about how we can think about the sort of true definitions of stigma and how they manifest in the context of food. So one example I gave recently at a conference, which might be useful here, is the simple example, I would say, of a shopping trip. So if you can imagine common occurrence, somebody has a benefit, maybe they're using WIC or SNAP benefits, and they're going to go into the grocery store. And this is an example that many people who have used benefits 
have shared with me. And it's an extremely emotional experience for people when they first get a benefit and have to go into a store, especially if they've had the experience of stigma sort of lurking over them. So let me just explain to you how it plays out. So first of all, I know that Valerie used the term target several times. And just to remind the listeners, a target would be this individual shopper. I'm going to call her Anna, who wants to go grocery shopping and is going to use her benefits. And in the instance where Anna grew up maybe in a a middle-income home or a place where people maybe were kind of judgy and they had judgments about those people who use their benefits or some kind of talk about that definitely communicated to Anna growing up that people were different and that people who use benefits might be different. So now she's walking in and she's sort of carrying that experience and those judgments with her as she now realizes she's going to need to use these benefits in the grocery store. So if we think about this She is the target of the stigma, and she may begin to feel like she's a bad person because she's receiving SNAP. If she starts to feel to herself like she's a bad person, that would be called internalized stigma. And so what we see is that people who experience more internalized stigma might be less likely to even apply for the benefit or use it at all. And so when we're talking about food inequality, then We're talking about this program that's intended to close a gap, but yet the person themselves might not be willing to apply for it because of something like internalized stigma. They might also have had experience in the past with maybe a boyfriend or something where they knew somebody who also had endured some kind of trauma in trying to use their benefits, or they saw the person in front of them get sort of treated poorly by the cash register or something like that. And so then they're carrying this experience stigma with them. Overall, they might just really expect to receive that judgment in the grocery store. So Anna's like anticipating it. She doesn't want to go. I know I was talking to someone who who really told the tale of this very well from their own personal experience. And they explained that they would only go grocery shopping in the middle of the night because of that anticipated stigma. And they certainly wouldn't go back if they realized they had extra benefits because they could only really feel this kind of experience once a week or once a month because it was just too stressful. So that's really how we think about it in terms of the shopper, which is that individual experiencing stigma. But I also think that there's the understanding too that's really important in this space around food inequality that's the larger system, right? So Valerie also talked about the infrastructure, but another individual is called the perceiver. And here the perceiver is like the grocery store checkout person. That would be an example of a perceiver in our experience. So let's say that person also has their own ideas. They are stereotyping people who come through to use their benefits. They might also be enacting discrimination or prejudice. And so through their actions, we're also seeing differences in the way that people are able to access food because they might not even want to use their benefit or they might use only part of their benefit or they might just rush through and just not even want to experience that checkout at all. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for those examples. I think it really helps to sort of explain the context. So could you tell us more about the stigma and food inequalities framework that you developed? So this was a really fun brainchild. (laughs) I feel like it's like we was a real mind melding between my background in stigma and Allison's background in food. So this was really fun to create. So the model is really designed, I think, to try to describe how is it that stigma, this broad social process 
impacts people and then ultimately impacts food inequities among targets, which we thought of in this paper, at least as diet quality and food insecurity. So it starts with social stigma. It considers a variety of social stigmas. So I think Allison was just talking a bit to poverty, but we mentioned a few others today, like race, gender, weight status. Then it suggests that this social process leads to these different manifestations that we've been talking about at the structural and individual levels. These manifestations then lead to three different sort of pathways. And so these pathways can be access to resources. So these different stigma manifestations can shape the type of food that people have available to them. And I know Allison has done some really neat thinking about how stigma shapes what's in grocery stores. So I'll let her talk about that. It can also shape the home food environment. So what's available in people's actual homes and then people's own psychological and behavioral processes. And this is, this was where I came into play a little bit more as a social psychologist. So at its heart, stigma is a very stressful experience. And so, you know, if you're worried about how people are going to treat you or if someone has treated you poorly, that can lead you to experience stress. And we know that food is also or is often involved in people's coping mechanisms. And so all of that can then lead to different food inequities. And then the whole model is sort of surrounded by or shaped by these different moderating factors or things that can shape how much stigma people are experiencing or how strong that stigma might be related to these outcomes. So things like when is it happening? Also culture. So we know that culture has a big impact on stigma. So where is it happening? Is it happening in the US where we have certain ideas of weight, for example, versus in another place in the world? And human development. Human development is really important because stigma can be more harmful when it's experienced at uh, different points in the lifespan. So, for example, adolescence is a really vulnerable time to stigma. If people experience it in adolescence, they can be more harmed by it than if they experience it as an adult. You know, I sort of have like my defenses up or I have more coping mechanisms developed by now. So we know that human development is really important. Allison, anything to add or any examples? I think you touched on a lot of them. I think the connection to between the infrastructures that we have, what we have access to, and how we have access to it really is an important factor in understanding to the framework. So if you think about benefit programs and how they actually operate and what it takes for you to apply for them, what those processes are like, same for kids as they're going through the lunch line, what is it? What does it mean? Or breakfast is a better example. Do you have to get to school early and sit in a separate area if you're going to be getting a meal? And how are you treated in those experiences? I think trying to bring to life some of the real world pieces of these experiences, too, is something that our framework captures, but we have yet to really fully understand. What are the tools that can be used to reduce stigma and how can they be used alongside existing interventions? I think the idea behind the tools is that as a general field of stigma research, we don't have a way right now to sort of snap our fingers or implement one silver bullet and get rid of stigma. So that's why we still have racism and sexism and any kind of ism or phobia you want to cite. We, we still have most of them. 
And so since we have no one strategy to get rid of stigma, what we do have is a whole bunch of different types of tools that we know can help with stigma reduction or can help to protect people from the negative impacts of stigma. So at the structural level, sometimes that looks like policy change. We've also seen like really cool interventions, sometimes countrywide, that use mass media campaigns to change norms. Like there's been some really neat work happening in the UK and Scotland around mental illness stigma reduction, where they've seen some real changes, which is neat. We also have behavioral design, which is just thinking about how can you tie the hands of our perceivers so that even if they're still endorsing prejudice and stereotypes, they can't actually enact their discrimination. So a pretty classic example of that would be in orchestras, there were all of these gender disparities and who was hired. And so they just put up blind auditions. And so after they made auditions blind, women and men were hired into orchestras at equal rates. So they didn't solve prejudice or stereotypes, but they made it so that those couldn't impact the perceivers, the judges. So that's sort of an interesting playground to think about. We also just at the individual level, we can use education to bust people's stereotypes. We can use contact interventions, just getting people to interact with each other to reduce prejudice for targets of stigma. There are values affirmation interventions to reduce stereotype threats. So kind of directing people's attention to the things that are valuable and worthwhile and that they're proud about their group can be helpful. Expressive writing interventions are helpful with coping. Social support interventions are helpful. So we could actually kind of go on and on about little things that are helpful here and there, but Allison might be able to ground some of these better in food interventions specifically. Yeah, I think with stigma related to food insecurity, hunger, poverty, and really using benefits, which is our biggest social safety net against hunger and food insecurity, is really starting to talk about it. I, in the last couple years, I think I've heard more and more people, and I'll even say, you know, I was at a conference talking about this issue, and conference goers who were also professors, one in particular came up to me and used the whisper voice, which I know means I'm disclosing to you that I had an experience like what you're talking about. But even someone who was at you know, a food policy conference who had attended a session on stigma still needed to use their whisper voice to tell me that when they were going through school, and then of course, they're always unnecessary caveats that they're sharing with me, trying to address the stigma that they assume I'm bringing to the table while giving their own description about their circumstance. Because these incidences are still happening so readily among people who now are quite empowered, I just think that probably the first thing we need to do to tackle stigma in the food landscape is to really encourage people to speak their experience in safe spaces where their shame or any any feelings of less than can be sort of handled in a way that, that will lift up that experience and their strength that comes out of it. Because so many of these people have gone through experiences where they feel shame, but really there's nothing but pride that should be told as a result of it. So I just think speaking the experience is really necessary. We need to have a lot more forums where people come out and speak their truth and feel proud of where they've come from. I think the other 
is probably some specific training that needs to happen at different levels, whether it be in the cafeteria or in the retail space about what can be done and what shouldn't be done to help limit people's experiences of stigma. So what are the policy practice and research implications of understanding the relationship between food inequality and stigma, particularly for Delaware families? So we're really seeing a lot more interest in this area now, and in particular with differences, say, between WIC and SNAP. To be honest, it's more at the federal level than, say, right now in in Delaware, although because we're at the University of Delaware and we do a lot of research here, I think a lot of the lessons that are to be learned at the federal level might be informed by the experience of Delaware consumers. But a lot of the ways that we use benefits or they're even administered has a lot to do with considerations around stigma. For example, there's a lot of debate between the WIC program, which provides specific products to families, women who are pregnant or nursing and their children under the age of five. And these are very specific products. For example, a very specific brand of a very specific ounce loaf of bread. And people wonder, is that the best way to administer that program, for example? Are we are we increasing or decreasing a person's experience of stigma if they have to get a certain product? And as we all know from COVID, a lot of products weren't available. And so we realized, well, maybe they could get a six pack of a product versus a single selection, or maybe we could open up the product availability to something a little bit broader. And at the same time, then we have SNAP, which, you know, provides money for a huge number of products in the grocery store. Really, it's more like a cash program. And so then there, there really becomes these questions about what's the best way to destigmatize the programs that we do have. And maybe we can learn lessons by comparing people's experience of stigma between one program or another program. Similarly, I mentioned already school breakfast and school lunch. So I think as we start to understand the differences in how people experience stigma, we might also be able to take those experiences and apply them then to different programs and figure out, well, if on this one, people experience less of this, but on that one, they experience less of that, maybe we could make a recommendation to, for example, be more flexible in the way that we administer a program or more rigid. That's really helpful. I'm just really thankful that there are people like you doing this type of work because it just seems so meaningful and could really have huge impacts on on the people who benefit from these programs. So thank you. I mean, it really is though true when you hear people's stories of the pain of using a benefit that so many millions of Americans use every year that's intended to basically be a social safety net that is there for people who have run into a hard time or who've had a child and they didn't expect to right now. And they're in the midst of a health crisis. I mean, this is really the stories of the families that I hear from. And yet on top of those stressors, they still feel like, you know, in order to talk about using something as simple as a food stamp or, you know, snap now that they need to whisper to me all the justifications of why they didn't expect to have this baby right now. And it was just a hard time and their husband lost their job and they were in school and they didn't want to quit. And, you know, they explain all these circumstances and, and it just makes you sit back and wonder like, 
why why do we make it this hard for people? And how can we kind of cut back on all these sort of tales, which then manifest into being a very stigmatized experience in all these different facets of our lives? So I appreciate you being here and covering this topic too. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I would just add that this was a really kind of fun collaboration because I think a lot about stigma, you know, as I mentioned earlier, but most of my work's in other areas. And then so working on this with Allison and she's just like a fount of examples, like any type of thing, (laughs) you know, it's like we're building this model and it's like, well, what's an example of a stereotype in a corner store? And here's like 15 or what's an example of what this might look like for somebody moving through the grocery store. You already, you know, you heard that today or someone who might be receiving a benefit for school lunch. This is Mm -hmm. what they may experience. It's so pervasive. It just, it really kind of knocks you over when you start to think about all of the little ways that this might impact people. And, you know, I think we've talked quite a bit about the targets today, but then when you also think about like all of the people involved in food, so who are the people like stocking the shelves and where are they putting food, depending on what their expectations are of the people who are going to be buying that food. I had just in working with Allison and we had worked together for a few years before we started this paper, I knew of her work. It was just like, you're putting on a pair of sunglasses and seeing the world a little bit differently. Once you start thinking about all of the ways that this could be impacting people. And I think at the heart of it, so much of it is classism and poverty stigma, which are rooted in these ideas of like Protestant work ethic that the people who work hard, good things happen to them. And we know that that's like not true, right? And also belief in a just world, good things happen to good people again. So we just, I think we don't spend enough time thinking about those Mm -hmm. types of issues. And when, so just kind of circling back to where Allison started this, that the more people talk about their own experiences, but also these sort of larger systemic issues that, really permeate society, I think the more other people will sort of put on those glasses and see all of these sort of different examples around them and think about how to change them. Yeah, actually, if we have time, I just want to share one more quick story related to that, because I I worked for a little while with a dietitian who was the chief dietitian for a large grocery retail chain that served a number of uh, Diné or Native American populations. And Throughout those conversations, it became clear that there was an expectation that the food that got put in the salad bar should be including marshmallows. So I'm not quite familiar with these salad products, but they're certainly not a salad of leafy greens. They're a salad of like maybe gelatinous jello type product. Anyway, I found it fascinating that this kind of product was something that people just assumed you needed to have on a salad bar. <laughs> and it struck me as it's really the perpetuation of stereotypes, which leads to a lot of other changes in the way that people shop and eat and expectations around what food's available and even what kinds of stores they decide to shop at. So it's just another example, I think, of how there's layers within the grocery setting alone. And that's just one facet of the way that we buy and eat food that can be really influenced by by stigma. 
Fascinating. I feel like we I could hear examples about this all day and try to understand more about just how complex the issue is. And again, I think the word that was used well is pervasive. I do want to ask you, are, are there any resources you'd like to point folks to or any additional information that you'd like us to feature? If folks are interested, there's some resources related to stigma on my website. So that's earnshawlab.org. We actually host a podcast. We haven't put out any recent ones, but we have a podcast on stigma that's called Sex, Drugs, and Science. So that's about sex and drugs. And we talk about stigma a lot over there. And then I guess I'll volunteer Allison and myself. We would say that there's actually... This is a new area. There's not a ton of resources out there. And we would love maybe to hear from you if you wanted to engage more with us about this, especially we're in Delaware. We love Delawareans. Like if this is something that you are interested in or excited about or want to make changes over, like find us on the web, send us an email. (laughs) We'll probably be linked to somewhere in the notes for the episode and we'd be happy to hear from you. Yes, absolutely. We'll have your university bios linked in the episode description. We'll have your paper in the episode description, and we can also link to your website and podcast. Great. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of E4E, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu slash PPE.